TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Neutrality or Membership, the role of NATO in War and Peace in Ukraine. Professors Noam Chomsky and John Mersheimer. On January 10, 2022, the author, linguist and historian Noam Chomsky addressed the question, was Ukraine invited to become part of NATO? And who did the inviting? A large part of the conflict goes back to the decision of the United States, first by George W. Bush, 2008, then reaffirmed by Obama, to invite Ukraine to enter NATO. Now, no Russian leader is likely to accept that. Uh, Ukraine is far too great uh, geostrategic significance and also historical significance and cultural significance to Russia for Russian leaders, uh, Putin or anyone else, to accept uh, incorporation of Ukraine within a hostile military alliance. Now, this effort by the United States was vetoed by France and Germany, but that didn't mean anything. The United States proceeds with it. Of course, that would mean withdrawal of the US call for Ukraine to join NATO. It would mean that Ukraine would have sort of Austrian-style neutrality, the kind that Austria had right through the Cold War, not part of any military alliance. Uh, it would mean that there'd be federal some kind of federation in Ukraine, which would provide degree of autonomy to the Donbass region, demilitarization, a couple of other conditions. All of this is quite feasible. Uh, it's not what's happening. Uh, the United States under strong internal pressure from right wing and also centrist opinion is moving towards uh, intensifying the crisis. So is Putin. This is the most dangerous crisis in the world right now, and also the most easily settled. Uh, now, this goes back to the question of the means by which NATO was expanded. You go back to the collapse of the Soviet Union. There were several conceptions of how the Eurasia region should be organized. One of them, which was advanced by Mikhail Gorbachev, and by Germany, Hans-Dietrich Genzer, the uh, German foreign minister, both of them proposed uh, a kind of Eurasian security system with no military blocks. Well, that was rejected by the United States, was actually supported by Germany. A core part of this was unification of Germany, which the Germans, of course, wanted. and. Uh, uh, the question was how this could take place. I remember for Russia, unification of Germany is not a trivial matter. Uh, Germany alone had virtually destroyed Russia several times during the past century. So for Russia to agree, as Gorbachev did, to agree to allowing Germany to be unified within NATO, hostile military alliance, was quite a concession, but there was a condition. Condition was that 
NATO would not expand to the east. Uh, the phrase that was used was not one inch to the east. That meant East Germany. Nobody was contemplating broader expansion, at least in public, maybe privately they were. Uh, well, uh, NATO did advance to East Germany under Bush and under Clinton, it moved all the way to the Russian border, Baltic states, uh, other states, Balkan states. It could have been done in a way which would have eliminated, certainly eased tensions. There was what was called the Partnership for Peace in the 1990s, which was a pretty sensible approach that contemplated expanding NATO or another general alliance to include the East European states, but to do it in stages, varying from country to country, depending on the circumstances, taking Russian concerns into consideration, even uh, contemplating bringing Russia itself into this system, as incidentally Putin has suggested. Uh, these were all possibilities. They were abandoned in favor of what was called the Clinton Doctrine. Let's just expand militarily right to the border of Russia, militarizing, bringing them into NATO, uh, weapon systems that are called defensive, but of course threaten Russia. Uh, all of this was done in a manner which was almost guaranteed to increase tensions. We're now facing it. And what's happening is extremely dangerous, but also has a solution, one in which Europe would play a central role. But that, of course, requires that Europe take up the option, which has already always had, to become an independent force in world affairs. Has that option? It's rejected it. It's chosen to be subordinate to the United States. And as long as Europe does that, we'll be in serious danger. That was Noam Chomsky on the risk of Europe being subordinate to U.S.-NATO politics. This was an excerpt from his January 10, 2022 presentation on the podcast Europe Matters. After a lifetime teaching at MIT, Chomsky is now Laureate Professor of Linguistics at the University of Arizona and still active as philosopher, historian, and author. On March 3, 2022, Professor John Mersheimer spoke on the topic of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. NATO membership versus neutrality has become the most contested factor in the attempts to bring peace to Ukraine. However, the history of the founding and subsequent expansion of NATO is redacted or unknown. John Mersheimer is professor of political science at the University of Chicago. He has taught there since 1982. He has written extensively about security issues and international politics. He begins by asking, who caused the current crisis? I'd like to break my talk into two parts. I'd like to first of all talk about the causes 
of the present crisis. And I'd like to speculate on where this is all headed. It's very important to understand that who caused this situation is of tremendous importance because it involves assigning blame. You really have two choices here. You can argue that the West and especially the United States caused the crisis, or you can argue that the Russians caused the crisis. But that means that whoever you argue caused the crisis is responsible for this disaster. And it is important to understand that this is a disaster. Ukraine has lost Crimea. It's, in my opinion, going to lose the Donbass. And the only interesting question to me at this point is whether it's also going to lose more territory in the eastern part of its country. Furthermore, uh, Ukraine's economy is wrecked. Its cities are in the process of being wrecked. The international economy is going to be badly affected by these events as they go on. Uh, this is going to have terrible consequences, I think, for the Democrats in the fall. Furthermore, it makes it difficult for the United States to pivot out of Europe and pivot to China, where there is a potential threat, which is China. Uh, furthermore, we're driving the Russians into the arms of the Chinese, which makes no sense at all. And all at the same time, we're making Eastern Europe a very unstable region and therefore forcing us to, if anything, up the ante there. Uh, so this is a disastrous situation. So the question of who caused it and who bears the blame really matters. Now, the conventional wisdom in the United States and in the West more generally is that the Russians are responsible for this. And in particular, Vladimir Putin is responsible. Um, as I'm sure almost all of you know, I haven't bought this argument at all, and I haven't bought it for a long time. In my opinion, the West bears primary responsibility uh, for what is happening today. And it was largely a result of a decision uh, in April 2006 to make Ukraine and to make Georgia a part of NATO. We were going to integrate Ukraine into NATO come hell or high water. Now, the Russians said at the time that this is categorically unacceptable. Uh, the Russians made it clear that they had swallowed the first two tranches of NATO expansion, the 99 expansion and the 2004 expansion, but Georgia and Ukraine were not going to become part of NATO. Uh, they were drawing a line in the sand. They said, this is an existential threat to us. And indeed, in August of that year, of course, August 2008, you had a war involving the Russians and the Georgians over the whole issue of whether or not Georgia would become part of NATO. Uh, now, it's important to understand that when we talk about Western policy and we focus on NATO and expansion of NATO into Ukraine, that actually Western policy had three prongs to it. Uh, the core prong was definitely integrating Ukraine into NATO, but the other two prongs were integrating Ukraine into the European Union and turning Ukraine into a pro-Western liberal democracy, in effect, putting in place the Orange Revolution. And these three prongs of the strategy were all designed to make Ukraine a pro-Western country. Now, the first crisis broke out 
in February 2014. Then you had a major crisis breaking out in December of last year, that's December 2021. And on February 24th of this year, the war started. Now, what about this crisis in February of 2014, February 22nd to be exact? It was precipitated in large part by uh, a coup that was supported by the United States that took place in Ukraine and resulted in a pro-Russian leader, President Yanukovych, being overthrown and being replaced by a pro-American prime minister. Uh, the Russians found this intolerable. Uh, at the same time, they were debating um, with the West and with the Ukrainians over EU expansion. And always in the background at that point in time was NATO expansion. Uh, this blew up and uh, it had two consequences. One is that the Russians, in effect, took Crimea away from Ukraine for themselves. The second thing happened is that the Russians helped foster a civil war in eastern Ukraine. And of course, that civil war festered well after 2014. Then, starting about mid-year, and really heating up at the end of last year, I would say in December 2021, was a second major crisis. And the question is, what caused this crisis? And in my opinion, it was caused largely by the fact that Ukraine was becoming a de facto member of NATO. It's commonplace in the West, especially in Washington these days, to say that Russia had nothing to fear regarding Ukraine becoming part of NATO. And Russia had nothing to fear because NATO was doing nothing to move forward Ukraine's incorporation into NATO. I think in a de jure sense, that's absolutely correct. But in a de facto way, that's wrong. What we were doing was we were arming the Ukrainians. And you want to remember, it's President Trump in December of 2017 who was under great pressure, who decided to arm the Ukrainians. So we were arming the Ukrainians, uh, we were training the Ukrainians, and we were forming ever closer diplomatic ties with the Ukrainians. And this spooked the Russians. It especially spooked the Russians in the summer of last year when the Ukrainian military used drones against Russian forces in the Donbass region. It especially spooked the Russians last summer when the British drove a destroyer through territorial waters, Russian territorial waters in the Black Sea. It especially spooked the Russians in November uh, when we were flying bombers within 13 miles of the Russian coast. So all these events coupled with this de facto bringing of Ukraine into NATO pushed the Russians to what Sergei Lavrov said was the boiling point. You know, Lavrov was asked in January why the Russians uh, had reached this point and why we were in the midst of a crisis. And he said, Lavrov said in January, we had reached our boiling point. First expansion of NATO, second expansion of NATO, and then all of these events associated with Ukraine. The Russians had had it. So you had a crisis of massive proportions, which of course resulted on February 24th in the um, Russians invading Ukraine 
and we are now in the midst of a real war. This is not just a civil war in eastern Ukraine, which is what we had before February 24th. Uh, we now have a real war. So this brings us to the question of what is the conventional wisdom on this subject? And how do I think about the opposing argument? The opposing argument is that this has nothing to do with NATO expansion. It's really quite remarkable. When, when you listen to people in the administration speak, uh, and when you read uh, editorials in, in the Washington Post, uh, words like this is spoken. This has absolutely nothing to do with NATO expansion. I, I don't know how anybody can say that. The Russians have been saying since April 2008 that this is all about NATO expansion, that NATO expansion into Ukraine is an existential threat to them. But Americans simply refuse to believe that. Not all Americans, but many Americans, and certainly the policy elite in this country. And instead, what they have done is they've created a story that it is not American policy. It's not NATO expansion that's driving this train. Instead, it's Vladimir Putin. And it's the fact that Vladimir Putin is either bent on recreating the Soviet Union or he's interested in creating a greater Russia. But whichever one of those two outcomes you take, he is ultimately an expansionist. He's on the march. And thank God we expanded NATO, because if we hadn't expanded NATO, he'd probably be in Berlin by now, if not Paris. This is the basic argument. Uh, he is an aggressor. There are a number of problems with that argument. First of all, before February 22nd, 2014, nobody was arguing that he was aggressor. Nobody was arguing that NATO expansion was required for the purposes of containing Russia before February 22nd, 2014. And in fact, when the crisis broke out on February 22nd, 2014, we were actually shocked. If you go back and look at the newspapers at the time, the Obama administration was caught with its pants down. Why? Because they didn't think that the Russians were aggressive. But of course, we had to invent the story after the crisis broke out so that we weren't blamed for what happened. We had to blame the Russians. So we created this story. Second reason you want to doubt this is that Putin has never said that he is bent on recreating uh, the Soviet Union or he's bent on creating a greater Russia. He's never said he was bent on conquering Ukraine and integrating it into Russia. There's no question that in his heart, he thinks that uh, uh, it would be appropriate for Ukraine to be part of Russia. In his heart, he's made it clear he'd love back to bring back the Soviet Union. But he's also explicitly said that in his head, he fully understands that this is a bad idea. So if you look at what he said, there's no reason to think he's bent on recreating the Soviet Union or creating a greater Russia. To take this a step further, he doesn't have the capability. He doesn't have the capability for two reasons. First of all, he doesn't have a big enough military. This is a country whose gross national product is smaller than Texas's, right? This is not the former Soviet Union in its heyday. Uh, 
Furthermore, the Russians understand that occupying countries or occupying territory in Eastern Europe is a prescription for big trouble. Most of us on this call are old enough to remember the Cold War and all the trouble that the Soviets had. Think East Germany, 1953, Hungary, 1956, Czechoslovakia in 1968, constant trouble with the Poles. And one could argue that the Romanians and the Albanians were the biggest pain in the necks they ever faced. The Russians are surely sophisticated enough to know that not only do they not have the capability, but that occupying Ukraine, occupying the Baltic states would be like swallowing a porcupine. This would be crazy. But anyway, here we are. And I think everybody is very interested in the question of where we go from here. So let me say a few words about that. First of all, let me start with U.S. policy. U.S. policy is to double down. That's what we're going to do. This is what we did after 2014. Instead of reevaluating and saying maybe NATO expansion is not such a good idea, we went in the opposite direction. This is why I'm telling you that by 2021, the Russians understood that we were turning Ukraine into a de facto member of NATO. They understood that. We're encouraging the Ukrainians to resist. We're not going to fight for them, you understand. We're going to fight to the last Ukrainian, but we're not going to do any of the fighting. They're on their own in that regard. But we're going to arm them and do what we can to train them at this late date and hope that they can hang in there and duke it out with the Russians. And nobody believes they're going to defeat the Russians, but maybe you'll get a stalemate. Now, the question you have to ask yourself, this is really the key question, is what are the Russians going to do, right? Uh, it seems to me that a lot of people in the West think that if the Ukrainians provide enough resistance, the Russians will roll over and play dead. Or maybe Vladimir Putin will throw his hands up, he'll surrender, he'll say, this was all a bad idea, uh, I regret doing it. Uh, or maybe there'll be a coup in Moscow, he'll be overthrown, and they'll bring in leaders who will work out a deal with us, and Ukraine will live happily ever after, we will live happily ever after, and the Russians will be chastened. I've spent my entire adult life studying great power politics. This is not the way the world works, and it is certainly not the way the Russians work. This is an existential threat, right? So even before the current war, Ukraine, and Ukraine becoming part of NATO was viewed as an existential threat. Now you're talking about a situation where you defeat the Russians in Ukraine. This is a much worse outcome for the Russians than what happened in April 2008, and a much worse outcome than what happened in February 2014. And the Russians are not going to roll over and play dead. In fact, what the Russians are going to do is they're going to crush the Ukrainians. They're going to bring out the big guns. They're going to turn places like Kiev and other cities in Ukraine into rubble. They're going to do Fallujahs. They're going to do Mosul's. They're going to do Grozny's. You know what happened in World War II when the United States was faced with the possibility of having to invade the Japanese home islands in early 1945. The idea of invading the Japanese home islands after what happened at Iwo Jima and then later what happened in Okinawa really spooked us. So you know what we did? We decided to burn Japanese cities to the ground starting on March 10th, 1945. 
We killed more people the first night we firebombed Tokyo than we killed at either Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Why? Because we did not want to invade the Japanese main islands. And then there's the nuclear dimension to this. The Russians have already put their nuclear weapons on high alert. This is a really significant development because what they were doing was sending us a very powerful signal as to how seriously they take this crisis and what's going on. So again, if we start winning and the Russians start losing, you want to understand that what we're talking about doing here is backing a nuclear armed great power that sees what's happening as an existential threat into a corner. This is really dangerous. I think the likelihood of nuclear war is very small, but the likelihood doesn't have to be high for me to be really scared because of the consequences associated with nuclear use. So we better be extremely careful here regarding what we do in terms of pushing the Russians into the corner. But again, I'm not sure that's going to happen because I think what's going to happen here is that in a competition between us and the Russians, the Russians will win. Now you're saying to yourself, why is he saying that? I think that if you uh, think about this, you want to think about who has the greater resolve, right? Who, who really cares more about this situation, the Russians or the Americans? The Americans do not care that much about Ukraine. The Americans have made it clear they are not even willing to fight and die for Ukraine. So it's not that important to us. For the Russians, they have made it clear it's an existential threat. So the balance of resolve, I believe, favors them. So as we walk up the escalation ladder moving forward, my guess, and it's just my guess, is that the Russians will prevail, not the Americans, and the Russians will prevail because the balance of resolve favors them. Now, the question is, who loses this war? I think it doesn't matter much to the United States if we lose in the sense that the Russians prevail in Ukraine. I think the real losers in this war are the Ukrainians. And I think what's happened here is we have led the Ukrainians down the primrose path. We have pushed very hard to encourage the Ukrainians to want to become part of NATO. We have pushed very hard to make them part of NATO. We have pushed very hard to make them a Western bulwark on Russia's borders, despite the fact the Russians made it clear that this was unacceptable to them. We, in effect, and here I'm talking about the West, we took a stick and we poked the bear in the eye. And as you all know, if you take a stick and you poke a bear in the eye, that bear is probably not going to smile and laugh at what you're doing. That bear is probably going to fight back. And that's exactly what's happening here. And that bear is going to tear apart Ukraine. That bear is in the process of tearing apart Ukraine. And again, we go back to where we started. Who bears responsibility for this? Do the Russians bear responsibility for this? I don't think so. There's no question the Russians are doing the dirty work. I don't want to make light of that fact. But the question is, what caused the Russians to do this? And in my opinion, the answer is very simple. The United States of America. Thank you. That was John Mersheimer, professor of political science at the University of Chicago.
He has taught there since 1982. He has a PhD in political science from Cornell University and has written extensively about security issues and international politics. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.